So here we are in week number two of this series, Heading Home. And as Dave has already said, we as a church are prayerfully putting the call out to anyone or everyone um, and calling them to come home to God. Um, So this is an invitation to journey back toward God and his church. That's what's happening here. And, And to do that from wherever you are, there's some... Each week, there's, there's a, always a mixed crowd among us here, which is awesome, you know. Um, some of you maybe have been away for a while and you're here because there's a sense that you carry that you know it's time to come back. Um, well done, brave soul. It takes a bit of courage to start journeying back. It takes a bit of courage sometimes just to walk through the doors of church. So well done, whatever you had to do to get yourself here tonight. Um, some of you have never been home you know, you've never been a churchy person, you've never called yourself a Christian, but you, there's something happening in you right now and it's, it's drawing you toward this thing that you're always suspicious of, but now you might be a bit open to it. Um, it's good to have you here. Um, some of you would say, no, I've been home my whole life. <laughs> I've, I've always considered myself to be in a relationship with God and part of his church. And if that's you, I wonder whether this series, you can take the time to respond to the call and consider how you can be more present at home with God and his people. Um, We've got another two more Sundays after this one. So this is week number two. And each week, as I did last week, I'm going to finish the message by praying and inviting any of you who want to pray a prayer with me that I'm going to call a heading home prayer. And I want to let you know I'm going to do that right up front so that you can prepare yourself for that. Um, you might know, know well in your heart that there's been something stirring for a while and you need to take action about it. Um, so just hang in there and pray this prayer with me at the end if you know that this is for you. Um, we're doing this series and the way we're doing it is by looking at this particular parable. One parable and we're pulling it apart over the next three weeks. It's Jesus' most well-known parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And you would have heard the language prodigal son, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, because it's part of the language in our culture now. It's so famous. Um, Or the parable of the lost son. If you were here with us last week, you would have noticed that we get this parable in a set of three parables. Yep. We get um, a lost sheep that is one in a hundred. We get a lost coin that is one in ten. And now we kick off this parable of a lost son, which is one in two. And you can see what the key theme is, can't you? It's this concept of lostness. Yep. And and the three big things we're going to be considering each week is, number one, what does it actually mean to be lost? How can a person be found? And what is the God that we meet anyway? What's he like to come home to? Jesus tells this parable to a funny mixed kind of crowd. It's got two groups of people who would otherwise not normally be caught dead together. Yep. You've got one group of people, the Pharisees and the tax collectors. You see this in verse 1 and 2. Um, they're the ones who are the proud religious types. They feel pretty worthy to be gathered near a teacher and to be listening. And um, they feel worthy to be accepted by God, basically. Um, but the other crowd that are there as well 
are the tax collectors and sinners who are outcasts in the Jewish community and would not feel worthy at all to be coming close to God or to a teacher of God. But you've got these two groups mixing together. And what that says is that what Jesus gives us in this parable is going to actually be helpful for a number of different groups of people. So kind of wherever you are at right now, Jesus is going to say something to you through this parable. You know, if you've been in church for many, many years and you feel really comfortable here and confident here, maybe you feel a sense of worthy to belong because you're so used to it. Jesus is going to have some words to you. And can I say particularly on week number four, when we look at the older brother and we actually discover that actually... This is not a parable about one lost son. It's a parable about two lost sons, but we'll do that in week four. Um, But if you're here for the very first time and you're searching and you're keen, um, Jesus is going to have a word for you here. Have a look at verse 11 with me. We'll pick it up there. It's up there on the screen. You meet the the three main characters of this parable in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. There you go. Got that concept? There's a father and there's two sons. And just right up front, the father is to represent for us uh, our heavenly father. So the father represents God in this story. And the two sons represent, I think, two different ways to relate towards God. Yep. The older brother, he's the classic, responsible, reliable, well-behaved brother. You know, that oldest firstborn figure in the family that's often like that. And you've got this younger son who is the rebellious, wayward, crazy younger brother. And maybe already you can relate to one of those figures more than the other. This week, we're going to look at that younger brother, the crazy one, the wayward one, the one that's more obviously lost. Um, Let's read verses 12 and 13 and see what the younger brother gets up to. Verse 12 The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. So the story begins with a pretty rude demand from the younger son to the father. He comes to him and says, basically, give me my share and give it to me now. It's not a polite request for a little bit of the inheritance early because he just needs a bit earlier. It's not that. Um, This is wrong on so many levels and we need to understand the levels. First of all, it's it's very presumptuous of him as the youngest son to think he's going to get any share in the inheritance at all. Typically in the ancient world, this seems unfair to us, but in the ancient world, um, only the firstborn son had a rightful claim to the inheritance. Yep. Um, Now, of course, the inheritance could be split between other sons and daughters, but that would be at the discretion of the father of the household. Um, The younger son should not have necessarily um, claimed a right to the inheritance, but here he is walking straight up to the father and, and not just requesting, he's demanding his share and demanding it now. Massively presumptuous. Yep. Secondly, it's a huge family burn what he does here. And I want you to think into the details of this with me. He comes and he asks for his share. And as you actually see, the father actually divides the estate between them. 
which is insane. So the younger son says, I want half. I want half of all of the wealth of this family. I want half of the property. I want half of the livestock. I want half of the possessions and I want it now and you need to give it to me now. So you can imagine what it would have been like for the whole family when the father goes, okay, and actually sells off half the property. He's selling off half of the livelihood of the whole family. He's he's giving away half of what the whole family used to function as a family and survive. This is a huge impact and disruption for the whole family in the ancient world, for the younger son to come and do this. Um, And the message that the younger son is basically giving to the whole family is this, I'm out. I don't want to be part of this family anymore. I'm leaving. Give me my stuff and I'm gone. I don't want nothing to do with any of you anymore. And I'll tell you what, later in the story, when the younger son comes home with his tail between his legs, um, you can't help but to um, understand why the older brother is still a bit dirty. Yep, because the younger brother's headed off with all the wealth. We'll get to that in a few weeks' time. But that's, that's one thing to understand. This is a huge family burn. He's disrespected his whole family. He's offended and damaged everyone in the family unit. Yep. Thirdly, though, and I think most importantly, here's the deepest level why this is wrong for the youngest son to do this. It is deeply insulting and offensive, particularly to the father. And that's what we are meant to understand here. We're meant to catch how disrespectful it is to come to the Father in this way. Think about it with me for a minute. If you're normally going to get a share of the inheritance in your family, when do you normally get that share? Yeah, it's when dad and mum have passed. It's when they're dead and when they're gone, that's when the kids start squabbling over what's left. Am I right? Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, when is that day going to come? You're just kind of counting down the days for when your parents are going to... And yeah, you might, you're thinking, can I nudge it along a little? Of course you're not. So can you see what's happening here for the younger son to come to the father before he's dead? What he's saying is, I'm not going to wait until you're dead. I want your wealth and I want it now. It is to implicitly be saying to his father, I wish you were dead because I don't want you. I just want things from you. It's insulting. It's offensive. It's disrespectful. What a rat bag. What a scumbag. What a little beep. You fill in the... Now catch this, and you're not going to want to catch this, but you've got to catch this. That insulting, disrespectful scumbag of a younger son is actually a picture of what we do in our sinful demanding of God. And this, you, you've got to catch this. At the very heart of the human problem is that we want things from God and we want them now and we're not thinking much about God at all. At the very heart of the condition of sin is that we want to take things from God and run off and live our lives without regard for him. 
because we think we know the life we want and we just want the things so we can go and live them. It's effectively to take the gift and ignore the giver. It's rude. What would you do if you were the father in this story and your younger son came that way? You'd be well within your rights, wouldn't you, to say, no way, rack off. Who do you think you are? Get out of here. Now, God doesn't do that. The, 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 the picture of the father here in this story is this, it's, it's almost absurdly generous and freely giving of the father. And that's what you need to catch about God. This is what he's like towards us. And more importantly, need to catch how we are in our sin, disrespectful and insulting towards him when we take life and we run off and live it without regard for him. At the very heart of what it means to be lost is that we, is that we desire to receive things from God and then just ignore him. The gifts that we want to receive are just all the blessings of life, yeah? You want health, we want to enjoy nature, we want relationships, we want family, we want finances that work, we want opportunities in life. Really, the, the ultimate gift is just that you've got life itself. And have you caught that it's actually been God that gave you that life, freely gave you life, but in our corrupted condition, we want the good things of creation, but we don't want the good creator himself. We, half the time we don't even get what it means to have him or why we need him. It's insulting, it's offensive, and it's disrespectful. When we live this way, we show ourselves to be lost and distant from God. And really, we show ourselves to be believing a lie. That's how I'd put it. And the lie is this, that created things, the good gifts that you can get in this life, is what will satisfy you and make you happy and secure in this life. The lie is all around us, isn't it? It's the constant message we get from media and advertising that you just got to get more stuff. You just got to get your life sorted. You got to get all the things and then you'll know security and comfort and enjoyment in life. But the lie is just not just around us. The lie is in us. It's the condition of our heart that, that thinks, yeah, that, that is the case. What will make me most happy is things or situations, you know? It's uh, the young woman who thinks, if I can just get that boyfriend, who then can become that husband, who then becomes that father, then I will have lived my life. Good, good things, but not ultimate things. Or it's the young man who thinks, if I could just get that girl and that four-wheel drive, <laughs> then I'm living the dream, all right? Am I wrong? Now, we giggle at that, but then you grow up and it's just something else. It's just like, okay, I'm just going to get career sorted and I'm going to get the respect of my peers in my field. And then it becomes, I'm going to retire with a lot of financial security and investment properties. I don't know, we strain for so many things. And then it becomes, I'm just going to get to the end of my life and be able to look back and see the dynasty that I've created. <laughs> and then I'll feel content and happy. They're the things of life 
but they're not God himself. And we're thinking that that is what we go after. And, and, it, and it, that is us being the younger son. That's us saying to God, give me my share now because I want to live now. And if you don't give me what I want or expect now in this moment, I'm going to come to the conclusion that you must not be good or that you must be absent and I'm not going to follow you or respect you. Do you notice that in you? Can you sense your lostness? You might be brave enough to think, yes, I can sense it. And if you can, if you can feel it, if you're aware of it, if there's been some humbling in you recently and an acknowledgement that you're actually not home and you're a bit sick of being away and you need to locate where home is and head there, you're in the right place. We're looking at the right parable here. Hang in there. If, if you're sitting here thinking, no, I don't feel very lost. I don't, I don't feel the problem with my life. But if you're to be honest, you are living without regard for God, but you're thinking it's working for me. I'm enjoying life. It's coming together. It feels right. It seems right to me. You've got to catch this. Being lost can feel fantastic for a season. Being lost can feel wonderful for a good while. It can feel just like freedom. It can feel like living the dream. But you'll discover if you're living a life away from God that it's going to come to a grinding ruin halt. How's it go for the younger son when he dances off with what is really obviously squandering wealth? Hey, while you're up, Matt, can I get you to open those doors? I know we just closed them for kitty noise, but I reckon the breeze is more important than kitty noise. Are you with me? Yeah, cool. See if he can click the little latches. He's going to hate me for putting attention on him there. Verse 13. How, did, how does it work out for the younger son? Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to the pigs and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So what does the younger son do? He kind of gets the wealth from the father and he heads off to a distant country to spend it elsewhere. Can you see the picture? You get life from God and you dance off to go and live it apart from him. And the way he does it is he squanders his wealth on wild living. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that he enjoyed himself initially. Yep. <laughs> he spends up big on food and hotels and grog and drugs and women. It's like he goes to Vegas for a couple of months. Not that I know what that's like, but I've seen enough movies about going to Vegas and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, all that kind of stuff. It's like the young son, that's where he's gone. And he probably got lots of instant friends and had lots of fun and had stacks of pleasure. He probably quenched so many of his fantasies that he'd always had and thought that he'd be content when he satisfied all those pleasures. 
It probably felt good for a bit, but then the money ran out. Yep. And when the money runs out, the party is over. So Kat says with me for a minute, um, taking God's things and running off and living life apart from God without regard for him can feel great for a while, even a good while. In fact, someone can go through their whole life thinking they're nailing it and it's making sense to them and they're enjoying it and everyone's telling them they're living the life. But in the end, it will come to a crashing halt because to live life apart from God you will one day stand in front of him and realise, and and you realise you've ruined your opportunity to do with life what you were entrusted for it. Another way of saying it is this, you understand that the Bible says sin is sweet for a season. Heard that one? It tastes great for a moment. I'm a bit of a honey lover. Um, I love raw, unprocessed, dark, rich, local honey. If you've got bees, you know what to do with your honey, all right? Um, so, um, I, I, you know, I, I get a little teaspoon and I put it on my toast in the morning. I don't eat a lot of sugar at the moment, but I, I put a bit of honey on my toast. And I mean, I'm a devil, aren't I, putting honey on my toast in the morning, but I love it. It's awesome. But if I was to get that one kilo jar of honey and just get my teaspoon in it in the morning and just give myself one mouthful, it, it would just be beautiful. You know, sometimes I do it. But if I was to keep going and give myself another one, that'd probably be okay too. And maybe even the third one would go down well. I'm like, I'm nailing this. I'm just going to keep going. But if I did keep going, eventually it would start to just be a bit much, yeah? Start to feel a bit sick in the guts just to be a bit overwhelming. And if I was to get the jar and just lift it up and just start pouring it into my gullet, you can picture it, can't you? It's just dribbling down my beard and it's going everywhere and it's just glorious, all right? If I was to do that, I would make myself sick. Yep. Sin is sweet for a season and then it makes you sick. Living life apart from God can feel great for a good amount of time, but in the end, you'll know the ruin of it. Having sex with someone who you are not married to might feel great in the moment, but it'll make you sick. Greed for more money and a focus to just keep accumulating for yourself at the expense of others um, can help you feel safe and secure in your finances. But in the end, you'll let it all go and you'll realise it was a waste of a life. To live far from God and to go with the flow and walk on the wide road where everyone else is walking can feel like the right thing to do and almost even make sense in your mind but it's a road that leads to destruction. He hits hits rock bottom here and it's kind of a real clear rock bottom, isn't it? He finds himself, what happens for him? Like there's a severe famine in the land. He finds himself in need and he hires himself out to someone um, and he finds himself feeding pigs. Now, you might think, oh, that's not so bad. Is it feeding pigs? But for a Jew, this this is rock bottom. To not only be near pigs, but to be feeding pigs and to be so hungry you'd wish you could eat the food that they're eating. He's as low as it can go and he even references as you read on, he's, he feels like he's starving to death. So he, he really does hit rock, rock bottom and it's a picture for us of where sin leads. And maybe you're even thinking about your life and more recently you feel like you've hit somewhat of a rock bottom recently. You know, have you, have you hit hard somewhere? 
and, and, and you're realising the ruin of the choices and decisions you've been making that you know have been not honouring to God? Are you feeling that? Or, or have you got a sense of where your life is actually heading if you keep doing what you're doing? Do you know the rock bottom that'll be coming for you? You know the good thing about rock bottom? It can be the very place where you come to your senses. Yep. There can be something really gracious about a rock bottom. Not always. You, you'll notice when you go through a real hardship or you hit the end of yourself, you can actually go one of two places. You can become embittered towards God and blame him and everyone else for everything that's going on and turn further away from God. Or you can humble yourself and turn back towards him. That's the opportunity that comes for us in a rock bottom. Maybe you're heading towards a rock bottom. Will you take the opportunity that's in front of you? And the opportunity is what this guy gets, the younger son. It's an opportunity to come to your senses. I love that phrase. He comes to his senses. It's beautiful. He comes to his senses and he can see the outcome or the end result of his life choices, his decisions. You know? He can see how lost he is. He can see how dead he is. He actually sees what the, what the father ends up talking about. If you skip down there to verse 24, that won't be on the screen. Don't worry, Manny. Verse 24 in your Bibles, when he does come home, the father says this line. It's really interesting. He says, for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Now, we're going to spend some time next week on the Father. It's going to be awesome. Do not miss next week because we're actually going to look at his response, this surprisingly gracious response to this wayward son. And we're going to look at the details of what he does and what he says, and we're going to enjoy the incredible nature of our God, right? But today we're focusing on the son and what he does and the turning that happens for him. But you notice the father said, this son of mine, he was dead. He was lost. And, and it's almost like this son, when he hits rock bottom, he can see all of a sudden the lights come on and he's like, oh, I'm lost. I, I, I'm dead in this place. I'm actually literally going to die if I don't get myself out of this place. It's like he sees with clarity. He's never seen this clearly before. He's always thought there's life out there and I want to go and taste it and I think it's going to be good for me. And he goes and he does it and he sees how it just leads to ruin. He comes to his senses. Look at verses 19, sorry, sorry, 17 to 19. Let's read that together. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out, I'll go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he sees with clarity what he's done, how it's led him to be lost. He sees his sin and he decides, I'm going to put my humble pants on and I'm going to plan my journey back home because I can see that if I stay here, I'm actually going to die, but I can see there's life back home. So I'm going to head back. And when you look at the words that he's planning to say, it's really interesting. That's where you find out what's going on in his heart. You see, he has plenty of time to reflect while he's feeding the pigs. He's got plenty of time to think about, um, and then once he decides to head home, he's got plenty of time to think about what he's going to say when he meets his father. Do you ever do that? Before you find yourself in a situation, you map out the conversation, you plan out what you're going to say. That's what he's doing. He's got a lot of time to plan it. 
You know, he's like, I know what I'm going to say. Here's what I'm going to say. I might just get clobbered. I do not deserve to be accepted back home, but here's what I'm going to try to say to him. And he's planning it out on the way home. And I tell you what, when you, when you look at what he's planning to say, you can see clearly, um, you can see what's become clear to him. And what's become clear to him is his sin. <laughs> and, and particularly, I think, three elements to the result of his sin. He can see how his sin has ruined his life. He can see how his sin has affected other people's lives. And he sees ultimately how his sin impacts God. Those three results of sin. And you see it all in his rehearsing of his speech in his head as he walks home. Let's have a look at it together. The first one is he can see how in his sin he's wrecked his own life. That's it's kind of obvious. It's easier for him to see, isn't it? That's the first point. You see he's there. He's like, here I am starving to death. So hard to ignore hunger pains. He kind of sees really clearly how he's ruined his own life and he knows it's going to kill him if he stays there. He sees the way out. Um, in your sin and in my sin, usually the first thing we notice is how it affects our life. You, you'll notice how you're ruining yourself. That'll probably be the easiest thing to feel the easiest thing to notice. It's not easy to actually own the fault. It's easier to blame others for what's happening in your life. Yep. Um, but, but, but it's certainly easier to just to notice how you're trashing yourself. And maybe you can see how your sin is leading to some level of ruin in your life right now. And you can feel it in your bones. You can see the consequence in, in, in what's happening for you. So there's first one, first step, I think, if we're going to understand what it means to be like the younger son, but to turn and head back to God. It's to acknowledge your own sin and how you're wrecking yourself. You're ruining your own life. In a sense, you're sinning against yourself. Can you feel it? There's step one. Notice how you're wrecking your own life. Step two, and it gets harder to understand these next steps. They're not as easy. The second step is this, how your sin impacts others and affects others. Often we don't see that, we just see ourselves. But can you see how your sin affects others? Look at in verses 18 and 19, look what he's planning to say to the father. He says, um, I'll set out, I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he, he can see how he has offended the father. He sees how he's disrespected the whole family. He understands I've sinned against my father. I've insulted him, I've offended him. And really, I'm not worthy to be his son anymore because I bailed, I left, I broke it. So he kind of sees how he's affected things. He sees that his actions have been offensive and he doesn't deserve family position anymore. That's step two, to in your sin be able to accept how your sin has damaged others and affected others. That's hard. Because if you can see that and acknowledge that, you might acknowledge that you're not actually deserving of their forgiveness or deserving of restoration. That's scary. But can you see how your sin impacts others and affects them? That's harder than seeing how it affects you. Yep. In fact, the easiest thing is to do is to actually see how you wreck your own life. But this third point, the third level to which we um, need to understand how, what our sin affects is that it's sin against God. 
Yeah. And, and this is what he understands. This is what he gets clarity around. He sees how his sin is against God, which is not immediately obvious in the moment, is it? You know, it's, you can see it's towards his family and towards his dad, but he's like, no, no, this is against heaven. And this is the one we've got to catch about our sin. And if you miss this, you'll miss the whole concept of the Bible, really, and the gospel. And that is our offence before our God. Not easy to swallow. But you can see there in verse 18, he says, I've sinned against heaven. I can see how my actions are dishonouring to the God of heaven, actually. I can actually see how I've trashed his name. I can see how I've caused him grief and heartache. This, is, this level of the impact of our sin is the biggest problem with our sin. And it's the hardest one for us to get our heads around. It's the hardest one for us to feel and accept. It's way easier to feel the other levels. It's harder to have our deepest concern be for God and what we've done to him. And yet this parable is attempting to help us understand that very thing or at least catch a glimpse of it. Ultimately, our sin is against God in heaven. Like when we take the good gifts of life, and wander off to pursue life apart from him, we fail to give him the honour that he's due and instead we give him disrespect. It's insulting to him and it trashes his name. This parable that Jesus tells us helps us to climb into the shoes of the father and feel his heartache. Yeah, did you, did you get a glimpse of how the father would feel? When the younger son does what he does, you're catching a glimpse of how our sin affects our heavenly father and grieves him. And if you can catch that, that's where you catch the heart of what it means to come to your senses. So as we look at the younger son today, if we're going to be able to reflect helpfully and catch what we're meant to catch, it's going to be that we come to our senses and, and we see how our sin affects ourselves, others, but ultimately how our sin affects God. And if you can see that and you can feel a level of grief about that, could you repent and could you turn and could you head home to God? Could you decide to do what the youngest son does here is in the place of rock bottom, get your humble pants on and decide to head home and see what kind of a father in heaven you're going to meet and start to plan your journey and what you might say to him. But could you turn? And I'm, I'm going I'm to finish now and I'm going to offer that heading home prayer again just now in this moment like we did last week. Um, and you may have prayed it last week and you want to pray it again this week, you go for it. Um, you, you may have never prayed this kind of prayer before, a prayer of turning and coming back to God and maybe this is your first chance and if, and if you know you've got an opportunity and you need to take it, don't hold back. You, you pray this prayer now. It's, it's a prayer that God is going to hear and he knows how to do business with you. If you want to use this prayer to be like a, like I mentioned earlier, a way of 
wanting to be more present at home with God and his people and to keep coming back and living with him, close to him, use it for that. But what I'll do is I'll pray this prayer and like last week, I'll, I'll just pray it slowly and I'll pause after each line to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer yourself quietly in your own head and heart and God will hear your prayer. Yep. So if you need to pray this, why don't you pray it with me? Let's bow our heads. Father God, I'm coming to my senses. I have taken from you without respect for you. I've sinned against you. I have offended and insulted you. I turn now and ask for your forgiveness. I turn now and I journey back home to you. 